Amen. Well, hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open up God's Word together. Father, I'm struck by that line that hearts unfold like flowers before you. What a beautiful piece of poetry, but what a beautiful truth, too. Lord, the realities are that whether it's the circumstances of life, just the experiences of our life, just the way that maybe we've interpreted certain things in our lives, our, our hearts don't unfold before you. They, they stay cold, they stay hard, they stay numb, skeptical, suspicious, untrusting. But yet I pray today for, for, for so many hearts in our community, uh, around this city, in the greater Savannah area, that those who would hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that that lyric that we just sang would be true, that hearts would unfold like flowers before you. Father, I pray for those in our congregation today that um, are missing loved ones. Maybe this is the first Christmas apart from someone, and, and I know that that is a, a deep, deep pain. So I pray for your comfort. I pray that you would remind those that are hurting that your son, Jesus Christ, is good news of great joy and peace with God, even in the midst of pain. Lord, I pray for those that are just here with family, friends, whatever it looks like, that I pray that their time of fellowship would be sweet, would be intimate, would be personal, but more than anything, it would be centered around the giving of your son, Jesus. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, hey, in uh, Advent fashion, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been walking through Advent as a church, and we've had some volunteers of our church read our passage each Sunday, so I'm going to let the butlers take it away. Is it on now? <laughs> it's on now. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Well, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. It feels weird to be here this afternoon. Um, I'm Noah. I'm probably a familiar face to all of you. Um, I serve as one of our worship leaders, um, and this is my wife, Kelly. Um, she serves in the three-year-olds and also check-in, so you probably see her a ton, too. So anyway, this morning, we're going to be uh, we're gonna be lighting the Christ candle, and uh, we're going to be reading Luke 2, 1 through 14. So here we go. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Thank you, butlers. Well, hey, everybody. Um, I got a feeling I'm going to be preaching to myself at 4.30, um, so it's good to see everybody. Hopefully, you found a seat. Um, 
But hey, Luke chapter 2 is our text this morning. Um, if you wouldn't mind turning there morning, afternoon, I'm going to do that 12 times. So just go ahead and get it in your mind. I'm going to say morning a lot. Um, but Luke chapter 2, um, our family's been in Richmond Hill now for about two years, and uh, raising our kids here, we have four, uh, reminds me a lot of the upbringing that I had as a kid. I'm from a really small town in northwest Georgia, and, and what I mean by that is it just seems that Richmond Hill is one of the last few safe playful places for kids. I mean, our, our kids are walking to school. They're riding their bikes around the neighborhood. They're just always out and about. And that's a lot of what my childhood was like. The only big difference was as a kid, even though I was always outside, I'm from Northwest Georgia. So these, you know, these flatlands down here in the coast is not quite the same experience that my kid, I mean, that I had, you know, having to go to friends' houses, crossing all these hills and all these mountains. Um, but I want to tell you about one particular Christmas that we had. So, so as a child, um, my friends would call our home line, Remember those? Not, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you still have one, okay? But, but we had a home line, and my friends would call this home line, and my older brother would usually be the one to answer, and they would tell him, hey, we have a backyard football game that's about to go down at so-and-so's house. You, you know, y'all need to get there. But my older brother, being two years older than me, was able, by my dad's permission, to drive our family dirt bike. So what would happen is he'd hang up, hang up on the home phone, jump on the dirt bike, and right before he cranked it, he would look at me and then just start laughing. You know, and then just take off, and he'd just be gone to get to this football game. And if I wanted to get there, I had to run. So I'd take off through the woods, and I'd cross these hills, and, you know, and by the time I'd get there, I'd be, A, cut up with briars, and then, B, you know, the game would already be halfway over by the time I got there. Middle child problems, it, it takes place. Counseling was awesome. I'm healed. We're good, okay? But, but one Christmas, um, I'll never forget, my brothers and I, we had opened up all of our Christmas presents. I was probably 11 or 12 at the time. Um, and my mom pulled the, the surprise present, you know, out from behind her back. And she said it was for all the brothers, me and my two brothers, it was for all of us, but she wanted me specifically to open it. You know, so I started ripping into this thing, and y'all, it's so vivid in my mind, I can remember exactly what the wrapping paper was. It was like this, this black and red flannel pattern, like something that probably a lot of you are wearing right now, just this black and red flannel rip wrapping paper. And I just started ripping into this wrapping paper, and by the time I got out of this, this first layer, you know, to my surprise, there was another layer of wrapping paper, right? Have you ever seen something like this? You know, a present within a present. And y'all, I just kept ripping layers, and I, I bet there was four layers to this one particular box. And far from being frustrated, for me as a kid, like, that actually played into the excitement and the anticipation, right? Like, I wasn't frustrated that I wasn't getting into the present. Like, like it was just building. Every layer of wrapping paper was building excitement and anticipation for me. So finally, I get to the box, and inside there's a key. And my parents say, y'all need to go, you know, look in the garage. And we all start running, you know, into the garage. And there it is, a Yamaha Bear Tracker. For you city slickers, that's a four-wheeler, okay? Four-wheeler for me and my brothers, you know, we're all excited. And my parents, you know, deserve so much praise and recognition for their generosity that Christmas. But more than anything, what it meant for me was I was going to be able to make it on time. Because they were going to let me drive the four-wheeler. It was an incredible Christmas. But what stands out to me, y'all just about that particular Christmas was not necessarily the gift, but, but just that wrapping job. And that's what I want you to, that's what I want to stick in your mind, because the wrapping and unripping that open and continuing to pull back the layers is actually what builds excitement and anticipation for the actual gift. And y'all, what we have actually in our text today is something very similar to that experience that I had. What we have is, is the ultimate gift of Christ. You know, my parents are incredible gift givers that they were and they still are, and many of you are probably going to just lavish gifts on your families this, this weekend. But you know what Scripture teaches us is that you'll never be able to outgive God. 
What Scripture teaches is, is if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so your heavenly Father? James would tell us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. That's James chapter 1, verse 17. You cannot outgive God. And what we have in Luke chapter 2 is actually the gift of his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 6 would say it is the free gift of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 says it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, which means you can't earn it. You can't merit it. The gift of Jesus Christ is is just that, y'all. It's a gift. It's intended to be received. What I want to tell you this afternoon is that that gift actually came wrapped. And what I want us to do today as, as a congregation is just peel back each layer of wrapping together, hopefully building excitement and anticipation for you to where you get to the point where you're going, who is, who is this child? Just building that excitement when we get to Jesus. So first point I want to make for you, and I'm going to keep it short for all of you regulars, don't worry. First point for us is that Jesus was wrapped in prophecy. Jesus came wrapped to us in prophecy. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Luke records for us a, a, a census that took place in the days of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman Empire till about 14 AD. So he tells us about this census that would have been for tax purposes and to register all of the citizens of the Roman Empire. He, he, Caesar required that they would return to their ancestral home. So not to the home that they're presently residing in, but to their ancestral home. So look with me at verse 4 of our text. So Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So Nazareth may have been where he was presently residing, but it was Bethlehem that was his ancestral home, because what we know from Scripture, Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 1, is that Joseph descended from the line of David. And if you read through 1 Samuel, you see that Bethlehem was the ancestral home of David. So the city of David wasn't just Jerusalem, it was actually Bethlehem. And church, the reason that Bethlehem is so significant to the birth story of Christ is that because 700 years, did you catch that? 700 years prior to the census taking place in our text today, it was prophesied that the King of Kings that the Savior, that the Messiah, that the Christ, that the Anointed One would be born in the town of Bethlehem. If you remember in Matthew's account of the the birth story of Christ, the three wise men, right, the three kings of Orient are, they they approach King Herod and they say, hey, where's the real king? Like, not you, like, you're just kind of the fake king. Like, where's the real king? We've seen his star. Where is he going to be born? And Herod, if you know anything about Herod, who had killed anybody that wanted his throne, Begin to tell uh, the people, hey, he's, you know, you go find them. But he, he got a team of scribes and priests, and he said, I want you to search the scriptures. He, he got this little crack team to search the scriptures. He go, where's this Christ prophesied to be born? When Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, the scribes and the priests came back to Herod, and they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. But you, O Bethlehem, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Church, that's a direct quote from the prophet Micah. Micah chapter five, verse two, that was written 700 years before this census took place, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So church, don't miss this. Jesus was wrapped in prophecy a prophecy that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, that the only problem is that when the time came for Jesus to be born, he wasn't in Bethlehem, right? He was in Nazareth, which is 90 miles away. But if you're part of our church, you remember that we have been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
And just as God, in his sovereignty, stirred the hearts of a pagan king by the name of Cyrus to return the people of Israel back to Israel, so now in Luke chapter 2, he stirs the heart of a pagan king, Caesar, to issue this census that would return Joseph and Mary and the baby in her womb back to Bethlehem, all to fulfill a prophecy. And church, that's just one prophecy. This Advent season, we've already seen Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 that it was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Matthew records another one, that when Herod sent his assassins to kill all the children in Bethlehem, that Joseph had this dream. This angel tells him in a dream to rise and take the child and his mother and to flee to Egypt because Herod's going to try to kill this would-be king. So he goes into Egypt and he remained there until the death of Herod. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's a direct fulfillment from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Church, I could go on and on, but Jesus' birth was wrapped in prophecy. In fact, his birth, life, and resurrection, all of that was prophesied about 300 times in the scriptures, all fulfilled in Christ. He was wrapped in prophecy. And just a little uh, free fact for you. It took me about 25 years to to learn that Christ is actually not Jesus' last name. Right? So, so if you've thought, yeah, Jesus Christ, that's his, this is his last name, it's not. Christ is actually a title for Jesus. It means the anointed one. So Christ, the anointed, wrapped in prophecy. But point number two for us this afternoon is that he was also wrapped in humility. Jesus was wrapped in prophecy, but he was also wrapped in humility. Y'all, there was nothing remarkable about his birth. Right? When you read the story of Jesus' birth, there's nothing remarkable. I mean, much like how Gabriel went to a no-name town called Nazareth, to a nobody virgin betrothed named Mary. So he, he has this unremarkable, humiliating birth story. I mean, first, let's look at his, his literal wrapping, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. So when Jesus was born, he was literally wrapped, right? Literally wrapped in swaddling clothes. But what I want you to notice, who did the wrapping? Right, if you go back to the text, who did the wrapping? She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. The text would say that that Mary did the wrapping. No nurse, no doctor, no doula, no midwife, no grandmother, mother, aunt, or friend. All of this screams a lonely and humiliating birth. You know what strikes me too, just as a man and a father of four? Where was Joseph? Like, why did Joseph not catch baby Jesus and and wrap baby Jesus? And all of you who have given birth, you know exactly where Joseph was. He had stepped outside because he was about to faint during the labor and delivery process. And that's total speculation on my part. There's nothing scriptural about that, okay? But it's, it's just so much humility that Mary would give birth and then herself would have to wrap him in swaddling clothes. Everything about it screams humility. But then you have his crib, right? She laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here in this manger, we have one of the few details of our cute little nativity scenes that's actually accurate, okay? And I say few for a few reasons, okay? First, the three kings of Orient are probably didn't meet Jesus till he was about a toddler, okay? So they're not there. And although he was born in a stable, there's no biblical reference to animals actually being present. So although my three-year-old was by far the cutest donkey you would ever see in a nativity play at his preschool this year, it probably wasn't there. Lonely. It was silent, but the manger, y'all spot on. Manger would have been a feeding trough. So where animals had once eaten, now the king of kings slept. A descendant of David had condescended to lie in a stable. Not a palace, 
not a castle, not a mansion, not even a hospital, but a stable laid in a manger. All of this screams humility. Let me give me one more reason of why this is such a humble birth. You have his birth announcement. Look with me in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, for the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the anointed one, who is the Christ, the Lord. Church, this is totally unexpected. For thousands of years, this child had been spoken of, prophesied about, long awaited, and long expected. This was to be the king of all kings who would establish his rule and his reign and whose government would continue to expand and advance and know no end. This would be the king in whom the source of all hope and love and joy and peace would originate. You would think with a child born like that, you would have some kind of a birth announcement like, like Simba, right, in, in, in The Lion King. Like all of the subjects of Israel, you need to descend on Jerusalem today. Governors, priests, high people, people of social elite status, you come, you bow the knee, and we hold up this baby Jesus because this is the king that we've all been awaiting for. That's the announcement that we would expect for Jesus. But he didn't come that way. And in fact, the first people to know about the birth of Jesus were who? Shepherds. Now listen, we are thousands of years removed from the occupation of shepherds, unless you guys have a job that I don't know about, okay? And it's really easy for us to, to put our kids in bathrobes and, and hold the walking canes and do our nativity plays and kind of romanticize this occupation of shepherd. But y'all, that would be far from the truth. This is not a romantic occupation. In, in biblical times, the occupation of a shepherd stood on the bottom rung of the Middle Eastern social ladder. In fact, in Genesis chapter 46, Joseph bluntly tells his brothers that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And it wasn't to the Egyptians only, it was also to the people of Israel. The Mishnah, which is the oral teachings of the Hebrew law, describes shepherds as incompetent. In fact, they, they couldn't hold judicial offices. Listen to this. They couldn't even be admitted to court as a witness because they possessed such reputations as chronic liars. The Mishnah reads that to buy wool or milk or a kid, which is a baby goat, from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it was probably stolen property. Did you hear this reputation, this stereotype that followed these shepherds? All throughout Jewish writings, shepherds are described with one common adjective. There's one adjective to describe the category of people like a shepherd. It's a technical term that describes all the despised, all, all the unholy, all the corrupted, and all of the dirty. Do you want to know what that technical term was? Sinner. That's right. Good job, Hawkins. It's a sinner. A sinner. When people talked about shepherds, they talked about them as sinners. So it wasn't kings or priests, but shepherds and sinners that the announcement of Christ was made. Church, Jesus' birth was all wrapped in humility. It was wrapped in prophecy. And I pray that as you begin to unwrap these realities, that, that you would begin to build some anticipation, some excitement, that it begin to beg this question in your own heart of who is this child? And the last point I want to make for you, though, wrapped in prophecy, wrapped in humility, but church, ultimately, he was wrapped for all of humanity. He was wrapped for all of humanity. You see, a handful of shepherd sinners, not the social or the religious elite, but the sinners were chosen to be the first recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you read throughout the New Testament, this is the pattern that you see throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry. 
that he ministers to the sinners. And listen very carefully, just the pattern that he continues today. He ministers to the sinners. In Luke chapter two, we see that Jesus came for sinners. Outcasts, marginalized, lame, those that mourn, the poor, the meek, those who hunger and those that thirst, he comes for the sinners. And when the religious elite were so offended by that fact and they came to Jesus and they said, why do you eat and drink with sinners? How did he respond in Luke chapter five? Listen, man, he said, the healthy aren't in need of a physician. It's the sick that need a doctor. And what he's saying in that statement is that, all, that a savior is only good news to those who know they need saving. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? That a savior is only good news to those who know they need saving. But the religious and the social elite of the day, they didn't believe that they needed saving. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. He says he, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In essence, he began to tell this parable to those who think that they were their own saviors, that they had everything within themselves to save themselves. But out there in the fields at night, God looked, y'all, in Luke chapter 2, he looked and he saw a category of people who would actually respond positively to the good news of a Savior being born. So he invites them. He invites them into Bethlehem to see their salvation with their very eyes. Look with me at verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. If you're someone who writes in your Bible, go ahead and circle that word all. You know what's crazy about that word all in the Greek? It means all. Like, there's nothing tricky about it. It means that the Savior came for all of humanity, a gift of Christ wrapped for all of humanity. But just as back then, so it is today that many refuse to receive the greatness of the gift of Christ. Although wrapped for all of humanity, many of us choose to trust in ourselves rather than to admit that we are actually more like shepherds than we are like saints. So Jesus and that parable describes the difference, the difference between shepherds and the difference between the spiritual social elite. He says in Luke chapter 18, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, or insert shepherd. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But how did the tax collector pray? Well, it says he was standing far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So church, the question I wanna leave you with this Christmas is what is it that you trust in? It's just pretty simple. What is it that you trust in? Do you believe, and don't elbow the person next to you, but do you believe that because you may be morally superior to the person sitting next to you, that you're justified, that you have no need for the wrapped gift of Christ? Do you exalt in your own piety? Because let me tell you, that will one day leave you very humbled before the throne of God. You trust in your own intellect. I see this all the time. That according to your own reason, according to your own wisdom, that, that you cannot even perceive a need for a savior, not much less a, a creator. Church, if that's you, do you exalt in your own wisdom? Because I can promise you that too will leave you humbled one day. Maybe you trust in your own family or trust in your own upbringing. 
This Savior was pretty popular in Jesus' day. People would come to him and say, we don't need you. We're descendants of Abraham. We're true Jews. Like our family lineage is pretty pure. We don't need a Savior. Here's how that translates in today's society. Well, pastor, my mom was a Christian, and she, I was raised in church. Well, listen, I'm not trying to be rude, but let me just go ahead and tell you, good for your mom. But if you exalt yourself and your family lineage or your upbringing, you too will one day be humbled. We all need a Savior. Are you ready to finally own the harsh realities of your sin? Because Jesus came to save sinners. And we're all sinners, y'all. It's time for all of us to admit that our sin has separated us from God. That our sin, due to our sin, the Bible would actually call us enemies of God. That due to our sin, that we are spiritually dead, numb to the voice and the conviction of God. And far from trying to save ourselves, my encouragement to you is that this Christmas you would just trust in a Savior. Because he was born for you. He was wrapped for all of humanity, but only for those who accept that they are a sinner in need of saving. So Jesus, wrapped in prophecy, wrapped in humility, wrapped for all of humanity. And church, this is good news. It's exactly what the angel said. Listen, this is good news of great joy, and it's good news if you accept it. It's not good news if you reject it. Jesus' birth was heralded to the lowest of the low, reminding all of us that we are too dirty for the divine but that he was and is still willing to stoop to our level and pay the ultimate sacrifice that we could have peace with God. That's what the angels announced, peace with God. So let me pray for us this afternoon, and our worship team will come back up and lead us through a song of response, a song just like what the angels were singing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with those whom he is pleased. If you would, stand up with me, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for sending us your son, Jesus. Jesus, the Savior, who is the source of all hope, peace, love, and joy. Father, thank you that he is wrapped in prophecy, wrapped in humility, and that one of the greatest things as a child of God is to open up the Scriptures day after day, week after week, year after year, to learn more and more and more about who you are, what a gift your Son Jesus is to us, and keeps on giving. And I pray that this Christmas, as we gather with family, as we gather with friends, that we would all, from the genuine place of our heart, be able to sing the song that we're about to sing. God, glory be to you alone, the King who reigns from a manger throne. My life, my praise, everything I own to Jesus the King on a manger throne. We pray this in your son's Jesus' name. Amen.